The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray together. Father, um, we come to you recognizing that you alone are God, and Lord, also recognizing that our life and joy can only be found in you. Lord, as we sang that song, Lord, I pray that it would be true of our hearts and our minds that, Lord, we want to give all of ourselves to you. So, Lord, as we, as we look at this uh, passage and the, the life of Joash this morning, would you use it um, to help us to see how you've been at work through all of history? Um, but, Lord, also, would you use it to help us to see our need for you and that you are the only source of trust, the only foundation that we can rely upon and that everything else will pass? So, Lord, be with us this morning. Open the Word. Would you use your Spirit, Lord, in our hearts to um, cause what needs to stick to stick? And, and, Lord, anything else that is just me or foolish, would you cause that not to stick, to get out of the way? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been recently listening to a, a trending and popular podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And this podcast is essentially a long-form investigative journalism that looks into the rise and fall of a prominent church and a prominent pastor. And in this, there's a lot about the story that is very interesting and also troubling. And I know I've talked with others in this church that, that are listening to this as well. And um, as with many things, we need to be discerning of both the story itself and the one telling the story. Uh, and in the end, I think this podcast has been helpful to shed some light on different things. And, um, but it's also complex and complicated in the issues that it gets into. And so... Um, I'm going to point out one intriguing aspect of it here, but don't, don't hear this just as a full endorsement, but also don't stay away. I think, I think it's helpful. Um, but one, one in, intriguing aspect of this podcast is how the personality of the pastor over time becomes central to the identity and success of the church. Though I think initially unintentional, Later, it becomes more overt, and the personality and ethos of the pastor becomes the brand in which many are following or subscribe to. And in this church and in this system, there was much external glory and success. We saw it in the platforms that were set up, the number of baptisms, the growth of the church, the books that were released, the downloaded sermons. There is certainly an argument to be made that this, this church and this pastor had influence. And, and again, it's complex. Some good, some not so good. But if anything, the podcast highlights that we need more than just a personality. 
We need more than just a brand or a movement, or we even need more than an externally thriving church or organization. We need something that's more core and more fundamental than that. And that's what we're going to look at here today. So we're going to be picking up in 2 Chronicles, chapters 23 and 24, looking at the life of Joash. If you, want to, if you don't know where that is, open your Bible to Psalms right in the middle, and it's a few books right before that, um, First and Second Chronicles. So um, usually this is one book, but we've recently divided it into, into two, two separate books. Um, and Chronicles is, is a really fascinating book because it follows and ventures down the line in the tribe of Judah. So in, in, in the context of Israel and their history, right after David was king and, and the, the kingdom was handed down to Solomon, there was a split in, in the nation. Northern tribes, majority of them, 10 tribes, became the nation, the kingdom of Israel. And then the southern tribe, which was really Judah and Benjamin, became what is known as the southern tribe of Judah. In the southern tribe of Judah, is where uh, David, he identified with, with that tribe. And that's, and that's where um, Jerusalem was founded in, in Judah. And so in this, we see that while most of Israel is falling away, God continues to work and preserve his line through the tribe of Judah in, this, in the southern and smaller kingdom. But as we look at this, um, and, and in previous sermons, I spent some time looking at the life of King Solomon and then the line, line of, or the, uh, the life of King Jehoshaphat. Um, this one, we're going to be looking at the, at the King Joash. And uh, the goal of the series is that we can look at some of the reforming kings of Judah and see how God has worked to, in the king and in the lives of the kingdom, both in good and bad. Um, and in the, in the end, I think it's good and helpful, but... Um, Ultimately, the goal is to see what we can learn from the lives of these kings and how they anticipate the greatest king, who is Jesus. So the context here that we're picking up in, 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 uh, right before 23, so if you trace it back, um, Joash is the king we're looking at. His great-great-grandfather was Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was kind of like a mini Solomon. He, looked, he did some really great things for the kingdom. Well, Jehoshaphat had a son named Jehoram, and Jehoram was, uh, was wed to someone, uh, a daughter from Ahab and Jezebel, who are, who are wicked rulers in, in Israel. And through his daughter, um, who we see here is Italia, basically through, through that, there's just dysfunction that is entering into Judah at this time. So Jehoram has another son, ah Ahaziah, who reigns for a very short time. He gets mixed up in some international affairs and ends up um, dying himself. And in his place, his, his uh, grandmother, Italia, she begins to reign. And, and this is one of the unique things that normally the lineage of the king is passed down from one to the son of the king. But here, uh, the line of Ahab and Italia, she comes in and as soon as her son is dead, she goes on a political suicide mission to eliminate any other threat or any other ascendant to the throne in Judah. And so she goes down and, and, and kills many of the royal family of the house of Judah. Well, as she does this, 
Um, Ahaziah's sister, lots of names, they're all there if you want to look at them, Jehoshabeth, she takes uh, one of Ahaziah's kids, Joash, and, and stores him away so that he won't be put to death. And in this, uh, this Jehoshabeth, she's actually the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, who we'll meet in a second. And in the, she, the child is preserved, his life is preserved, and he's hidden for six years in the house of God while this Ahaziah, or while Atalia reigned. Okay, so that, that's most of the confusing part with the names. <laughs> Hopefully you could track. But the point is, is that Joash is preserved when he should have been put to death, and then, and then that's where we're, we're going to pick up here. So as we look at this, um, I'm going to consider uh, uh, two primary stages of the life of Joash. The first stage is going to be the restoration of the kingdom, and the second stage is going to be the, je- the death of Jehoiada. So uh, the restoration of the kingdom and the death of Jehoiada. And then after looking at both of these stages, I'm going to reflect on a few lessons and applications. So first stage, the restoration of the kingdom. So we'll, we'll set, set up the stage by looking at 2 Chronicles 23, verse 1, to see where we're dropping in here. So verse 1, But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundred. And skipping ahead to verse, later in verse 2, they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king and the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold, the king's son, let him reign, as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. This is the thing that you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers, and one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and the ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy. But all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, And whoever enters the house shall be put to death, but with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. The Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And skipping ahead to verse 11. Then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king, and Jehoiada and his sons anointed him, and they said, Long live the king. So here we enter in the midst of Natalia's reign, and in this we see the rise of this priest, Jehoiada. And so Jehoiada, again, like I mentioned earlier, his wife is the one that took and preserved this child, Joash. So presumably he's here involved in the raising and care of this child. Well, in the first verse it says that he took courage. And so he takes a, a big and potentially dangerous move here to try to restore the rightful king to the throne. He sets about a motion to gather the Levites and the heads of households so that they can make together a covenant with the king in the house. And here he says, Behold the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. So Jehoiada's concern is that the rightful king be on the throne. 
So in many ways, um, the throne has been inappropriately ascended to, and, and David has been kicked off the throne. And so rightly, Jehoiada is remembering the promise of God to, to keep a David's line on the throne. So he, he goes about and spells out a plan for this. And if you look at the details here, there's a, there's a very methodical coup <laughs> to overthrow Italia here. And verses 3, for, through, three through 7 show us the plan. And then the second section, 8 through 11, there shows us the implementation of that plan. And the nature of it is, is that it's sudden and it's public. But also you see that he's not doing this as an isolated individual on his own. He's involving many other people in the nation of Israel here. And so as we look at Jehoiada, there's, there's two priorities that he has as he is submitting himself and committing himself to God's plan and order. One, his first priority is that the right king would be on the throne. You see just this in the importance of the lineage of David and God's promise to David to keep one on the throne. The second is we see that there's this priority of right temple order. He has a respect for the house of God. Right? He wants to see it cared for um, well and in that only certain people can be at the temple at certain times. And so in Jehoiada, we see this right balance and concern for who is reigning in the kingdom and how the house of God is being cared for. So prior to Joash taking the reign, we see the rise of a God-honoring and faithful priest, Jehoiada. And his role as a priest is to serve the nation of Israel and to support the king as he does, fulfills his duties in the temple. And so this, this is really supposed to be a team of king and priest working together, but we, hear, we see Jehoiada filling the gap where there has been no king. So next we go on to see that Joash is crowned and anointed as king. So all the assembly here gathers together publicly and formally to crown and proclaim and anoint Joash as the king. So like I said, this isn't just the work of one power-hungry individual, Jehoiada, to gain power for himself. He's submitting himself to the way that God wants authority and structure to work here. And, and it becomes the collective desire of the nation to rule out the oppressive and wicked and godless ruler of Italia. So we see all the assembly is here. We see the priestly Levitical role. We see the military role. We see people and heads of households here. And here they proclaim and they anoint the king, Joash, in the courts of the house of the Lord. So this, this is taking place in the house of the Lord. So Joash essentially takes throne as a seven-year-old, which I think, you know, we, we hear about these stories throughout history for monarchies and, and, and people, kids taking, you know, the throne at such, such a young age. And and so perhaps there's some question, what were you doing at seven? You know, were you still wetting the bed? Were you still picking your nose? And so I was like, what is God going to do for this king? You know, like he's just a kid. Um, but he's anointed, he's anointed a king at seven years old, and he's the rightful heir to the throne. And he, he might even be the promised offspring or seed that is going to restore Israel to the national prominence that God has promised to them. So he's in, the, he's in the house of the Lord. He's right next to, uh, it says next to a pillar, which would be a custom place for the king to be. And then in this, um, 
we see Italia's response to that. Upon, upon the pronouncement of Joash as king, Italia hears the noise and the commotion of the people running and praising the king. And so in this, you, you know, naturally, you follow the commotion. <laughs> you figure out what's going on, and she goes to the house of God, and there she sees him in this whole celebratory scene. And immediately she sees it, and she, she knows exactly what's happening. Another one has been proclaimed king. And on site, which would be like a public mourning lament, this is not right, she tears her clothes on the scene. And in a strange, ironic way, she yells treason. And treason, yes, she was, you know, the rightful ruler to begin with. But was there anything treasonous about how she got the throne, right? So she, she calls that. And then here, really, it's, it's not treason because the right king is on the throne at the right time. And so in this, in this whole scene, um, Jehoiada is ready for this, and basically he then says, take her outside the house. Take her outside the house, and, and she's going to be put to death. Now, this is an interesting detail that will come up later, but he says there, there is no putting, to, putting her to death inside the house. He says, let's take her outside the house, and, and she's put to death there. So here we see a... a transition of, of power. So in this, we see Jehoiada's concern for the temple, right? That it be clean, that it be a holy place, and, and that it would not be defamed. But Italia's uh, unconventional and really terrible reign of Judah is put to an end. Then in verse 16, we see that Jehoiada, he makes a covenant with the people, with, with the king. And he says this, upon her death, uh, Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. So what, what immediately follows this is a covenant renewal. Judah, for years before, has been straying. The two kings before Jehoram, so this would be Joash's grandfather, the Lord removed him from, from his king and, and basically struck him down because of his unfaithfulness. Same thing happened with Ahaziah. The Lord removed him from the reign because of his unfaithfulness and used events to, to do that. And here there, there's a restoration, a renewal of a covenant to, for the nation of Judah to recognize their God and to submit to him. And so in this covenant, we see a number of things that happen. We see immediately the removal of idolatry. So they go and tear down the house of Baal. They break the altars and images, and then they kill Matan, the priest of Baal. So there's a removal of the threat of idolatry to the land. They go and remove that. Secondly, we see there's a restoration of the Levitical priesthood. So David had organized the, the priest to be in charge of the house, uh, the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord and to care for the house. And, and David organized this according to the way that Moses had written in the, in, in the wilderness. And, and as he does this, as he restores it, there is a great rejoicing in the sing, and, and singing according to the order of, of David here and, and this restoration of, of the Levitical priesthood. Third, we see in this covenant renewal that 
there are gatekeepers put in place to keep the temple secure, to keep it safe, to keep any, anyone from just wandering in. And then lastly, we see that the king is placed on the royal throne. So there's a whole parade as they take seven-year-old King Joash to the king or to the king's house and then place him on the throne. So this, this covenant renewal re- represents a shift in Judah, a shift and a restoration of the kingdom, the way that God intended it to be. And then I love the summary here. It says in verse 21, So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Italia had been put to death with the sword. So to the city, there's a, there's a restoration. There's a rest that comes on the city, a hope, a rejoicing, a peace, a security. And if you guys, like, catch this, a quiet city is a good city. <laughs> so there, there's, there's, there's optimism about Judah and where things are going. So then at the beginning of chapter 24, we, we see that uh, it gives kind of a summary, that, and this is kind of a normal formula that we find in Chronicles, that Joash, he began his reign when he was seven. He would reign for 40 years. He's provided with two wives, and he has sons and daughters. Um, Jehoiada helps get him married. And, and really, I think Jehoiada's intent there is that he wants to see the Davidic line restored, right? He wants to see it maintained down, down the line. But then we see in verse 2, we see the summary of Joash's life. And it says this, And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. So he did, he did what was right. The overall perception of Jehoiada is that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. But if you notice, and we'll come around to this in a second, all the days of Jehoiada the priest. A little foreshadowing there. So further in, one of the first and primary tasks that the king does is he, re- he repairs and restores the house of God. He gathers the priests and the Levites, and he tells them to go out and to collect a tax from all of Judah, from all the cities. And this is the same tax that Moses commanded in the wilderness when they were to build the tabernacle. And, and the problem that, that comes up is that more or less Italia and her, her clan had raided the temple. <laughs> her sons and had come and taken the treasures and looted it and, and left it in one disrepair and without many of the normal things that you would find in there to function. So anyways, it seems that Joash is right and good to hit the ground running and say, we need to restore the temple is the focal central point of, of, uh, of Judah where God is present. We need, to restore, we, we need to restore it. And so, but for some reason, which we can only speculate, the Levites don't actually act very quickly on this. And in fact, you know, Joash needs to come in another attempt. And if, you, if you're looking at this and King side by side, this next attempt seems to be like 20 years later or something like that. But Joash, 20 years later, after the Levites don't you know, collect the money to, to, to rebuild, to restore the temple, he comes and approaches Jehoiada and appeals to him um, 
what was earlier said, that Natalia's family has come and broken in the house and looted it for the balls, and that it needs restoration repair. So to Josh's credit, we see that he, he doesn't just leave this, he, he follows it up to see that the house of God is restored. And together, the king and the priest build about a plan in which they, they take a chest, drill a little hole in the top, you know, old school piggy bank, put it by uh, the gate, the front gate of the temple, and, and announce to all, all the kingdom that they're going to restore the temple. And so it's in this box when anyone comes to the temple that they're to put their money, they're to put their tithes and offerings to see that done. And at this, there's great rejoicing among the princes and all the people, and it leads to a generous and willful giving towards this project. So we, we have a picture of both priest and king working together to see the temple restored to its proper condition. And it appears that the once young Joash is maturing, that he's filling the kingly office well as he works alongside Jehoiada to complete the work of God. He shows ingenuity and commitment in order to get this task done. And at this moment in time, if, if someone were to take a snapshot of Judah, all would seem to be going really well for them. And as you think about their future, you say, I think we've got a chance at a future here. You could look back and see the restored priesthood. You could see the restoration of, of a king on the throne in the likeness of David. See the removal of idolatry from at least Jerusalem and perhaps more of the land. We see the repair of the temple and, and the centrality and prominence of God's presence in and among his people. So in this snapshot, it looks like everything is going well and that the future is, is, is going to be a good one. But that's, that's true from an outside perspective looking in. Joash appears to be doing the right things. He appears to be conforming to the standard and hope that Jehoiada and the nation had for him. But that's until the death of Jehoiada. So now we'll look at the second act here of Joash's life that, that falls under the death of Jehoiada. Chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, you see that there, that Jehoiada dies at a good old ripe age of 130 years old. That's a good life. And we see furthermore that he's buried in the city of David. He's buried in Jerusalem among the kings. Catch that? The priest is buried among the kings. <laughs> and it's worth noting that the previous two kings of Jehoram and Ahaziah they were not buried among the kings. They were just buried in the city. <laughs> but here the priest is buried among the kings. Why? Well, it tells us there, because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. So here's a man, the priest Jehoiada, he's got the heart of God. And he's stewarding and faithfully fulfilling his role as a priest especially in hard times of Jehoiada, or the, the hard times of his life. He's 130 years old. He's seen a few generations in the turmoil from Jehoshaphat and on. And yet he's done good to restore David's line and to see the temple and the care for the temple come back to prominence. We see that he's done good to 
um, put Joash on the throne and to help mentor him, support him, care for him as king. So at Jehoiada's death, we're left with the question, will Joash be a faithful king in the absence of Jehoiada? Will he be a faithful king? <laughs> and the author doesn't, doesn't waste any time. You get to verse 17 here. And the moment that Jehoiada is out of the picture, we see these princes show up. These are like influential, influential political leaders of the time. And they just come out of the word work, and they start paying homage, old school word for like blessing. Um, they're speaking favorable. They're bowing down. They're coming and basically sucking up to Joash. They come and pay him homage. And the next thing it says, the king listens to them. And just like that, it says, they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served Asherim and idols. This is a little bit frustrating if you're following the line of, of Judah. That it's like every time something seems to be going good and moving in the right direction, it's like, oh no. <laughs> Not again. And and this is actually a noted pattern throughout much of Chronicles, that when a king is blessed by his fellow man, especially amidst his success, it marks the beginning of the end of that kingdom reign. Think no more of Solomon, the greatness, the wisdom that he had, and people come and pay tribute to him, and in there, there's, there's a pride that wells up, and that's the undoing of, of, of Judah. And we see this again, that these men come to the feet of Joash. Everything seems to be on track, and here they show up, <laughs> sucking up to him in some ways, and, and he's thrown off track. So th this is a pattern. The king gets puffed up. He relies on self, and it res revolts, results in a prideful defection and downfall. And, and it's no different with Joash. And notice that in this, how the author here pairs the act of his defiance, this, or this blessing, the, him not listening to God, with a divine response. So middle of verse 18, he says, And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs, yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. So in Joash's listening to these princes and this defection to go and serve other gods, the end result is that the wrath of God comes against Joash, but more than that, it comes against Judah and Israel. Joash is the head, is representative of the nation, and so therefore God's wrath comes on the nation through his sin. It, but, and God sends prophets to call them back. And they, Joash, the princes, the nation, they don't listen. So it's worth noting here that though the author of Chronicles is quick to show God's wrath as the immediate response to faithfulness, or the immediate response to unfaithfulness, I want you to notice that this is not actually God's default. That God is not quickly triggered to wrath and anger. No. 
In this case, he sends multiple prophets to call Joash back, to call him and the nation to return. But what's it say? But they would not pay attention. And as you read the Old Testament, it should become increasingly clear that the God of the Old Testament is actually a very patient, long-suffering God. And way before he's going to act in wrath and anger, there are multiple calls to response, of response to repent and to return. And you can even think about this with God through Moses to Pharaoh. Not even his own, <laughs> Pharaoh's not even his own person, and there's a call to repent and turn, and yet we see the hardness of the heart of man that just digs in and does not listen. So God is actually very patient, and, and the problem doesn't lie with God, but the problem lies with the stubborn pride of man who continually rejects God, though God's patience and his continual call to return remain constant. So in the case of Joash, he sent multiple prophets, but God sends one more, and this, he sends one more prophet-priest-type character. So if you look at verse 20 in chapter 24, it says this, Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Quick recap here. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, presumably serving as a priest, he publicly speaks out. He's clothed in, in the spirit. He speaks out as a prophet in kind of a prophetic role to Joash. And he asks him this question, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? So he, he, he calls Joash out on this in the sense that the commands exist for the prospering of his people, not for the restriction, for the prospering. And Zechariah calls, and, and calls him to see this and to return to it. But like most prophets in biblical history, the word was not heard. It was not heeded. And so Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, is stoned due to the command of the king. And this is... Joash further resisting God's voice and the call to repent. Joash shot the messenger. <laughs> he killed the messenger. <laughs> Which is an extension of, of, of God himself. Joash forgot the kindness of Jehoiada. But more than that, he forgot the kindness of God through Jehoiada. God has been doing so many things for Judah, and God has, done, has been incredibly kind to Joash, but he seems to become blind to that and forgetful of the past, perhaps reinterpreting what was actually happening. And so Zechariah's last words are, may the Lord see and avenge him. 
It was Joash's stubborn, prideful heart that causes him to spit in the face of the kindness of God. And this is the last time that God's, God's going to allow that. And on top of that, ironically, where everything began in the courts of the temple, the place where Joash started his reign as king, it's the same location that represents the beginning of the end for Joash. So remember how uh, his, his grandmother, Italia, was taken out to be put to death? Well, Joash has him put to death right there in the middle of the house of, the God, house of God. So it was by, the death, uh, by a death that Joash's reign began, and it's by a death that his reign will end. But these are two very different kinds of deaths. The death of Joash comes about in this way. There's a Syrian army that comes to attack Judah and Jerusalem. And the author is intentional to let us know that this army was small. The army of Judah of Jerusalem was way greater than this nation of Syria. But God delivered into Syria's hands the larger army of Judah. And, and this is the inverse of many stories of Israel. When God is for his people, they are often the small underdog defeating great nations. But here, when Israel has forsaken their God, God is with the small nation defeating the large nation here. God is sovereign and his will will be done regardless of circumstances. So as the events go, Syria injures Joash. But then some of his own servants conspire against him. And, and due to him putting Jehoiada's son to death, his own servants turn on him and kill him in his own bed, in his weakness. And why, why does this happen? What does the author say the reason is? Well, this happened because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. So what, what's Joash's legacy here? His story ends quickly and without much honor. He's buried in the city of David, but notice he's not buried in the tombs of the kings like Jehoiada. And it's interesting that Jehoiada is the one who is buried among the kings because in many ways his life and presence in Judah was responsible, the foundation for much of the restoration and reform that took place. It was Jehoiada's faithful service to God that grounded Joash. Though Joash was the kingly head, representative head of that at the time. How true is this to life? That someone like Joash can grow up with so much promise. His life can look the part. There appears to be fruit and amazing success. So much youth, so much talent, so much potential. And you look at it as, as the kingdom is being restored, you think, well, God must be with Joash. Because how else can you explain all this happening? But as time goes on, then you begin to see him hang out with different people who are all about him, who are all about his own brand. And, and some of these people hanging around him, they're like leeches to success and affluence. 
They come and begin to, to just suck off of his, his platform, his success. And then suddenly we begin to see a shift in Joash. Suddenly the wonder child is a bit arrogant. He's defensive. He's subtly about his own glory now. Because his glory, of course, the glory of the king is the glory of Judah, right? And anyone who questions that is surely not going to be about the success of the kingdom. Look at all that God is doing through him. And to get in the way of a person like Joash in the sense is to get in the way of God. No prophet can correct him. He's become his own authority. Joash had forgotten the kindness of Jehoiada, but even more the kindness of God. Because as we know, the Bible is a story about God more so than it is man. And that's what's central to the kingdom and its success, is that we see God as the main character, the main protagonist, the main actor who is bringing about his own glory and the success of of the people. So once again, at the end of the story, we find the success and promise of the king is not enough. The faithful service of Jehoiada, though effective while it lasted, is also not enough. Jehoiada died. And look at what happened next. The kingdom fell apart yet again. Faith in any earthly king, priest, government, religion is not enough. Even the greatest will eventually let us down. We need to trust in in something greater, someone greater. So now it's with this, I want to consider just a a couple of lessons and applications for us as we look at the life of Joash here. First one here is that we cannot trust in the success or righteousness of man. We cannot trust in the success or righteousness of man. At the core of this question for all of us here is what is grounding our faith and obedience? Is it cultural pressures because that's what everyone else is doing? Is it maybe if you're younger, is it family pressures? That's what my family is. That's what we do. Is it the least path of resistance? What is grounding our faith and obedience? Is it some reliance on self that we are good and have, have what it takes? We, we can think about this question and, and think about this in the life of Joash, but it's, it's like an 18-year-old leaving home for the first time. And we've all heard this phrase, you know, as, as someone graduates from high school and they're to move on to the next season of their life, <laughs> this phrase was told to me, well, you know, Brian, you got to make your faith your own, right? And th- that was me years ago. As an 18-year-old, I grew up with everything I needed. I grew up with my parents in ministry. I grew up in healthy churches. I grew up with the Word of God being central to my life. Everything that I needed was there shaping and forming and speaking into my life. But as an 18-year-old, I had a youth pastor speak into my life, and he saw through all the, the, the cultural things that were informing and growing me, and he sat me down and told me that 
he didn't think I was living for God. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so proceeded to graduate and um, actually moved up here to Utah to, to, to attend the University of Utah. And here, when I got here, there was a real question of, are you going to make your faith your own? You know? Are you God's or, is, or, you know, or are you just going along with what, with what your family wants? And upon showing up, for me, I was protected by another Christian ministry that conformed to the ministry standards, but it wasn't until later that God actually showed, showed me my sin in the midst of even doing ministry. He showed me my sin, my need for grace. And only in that did I see my stubborn heart and what Christ had accomplished on the cross to save someone like me. Only in that could faith become my own. It's the only path is a death to self. This was the opportunity for Joash to make his faith his own. But in the end, there was a louder voice that spoke to him, that grabbed him, that pulled him astray. And that's all of our default. And the scary thing is, is that there might be some of us here in this room that could be a Joash. In the right environment, we can be seemingly successful and obedient Christians. But at the core, there hasn't been a death to self and an identification with Christ. And so this, this is an application to all of us. But also I want to I get more specific here. This is an application to some of us who might be young in the faith or just young in age. If you're a high school or middle school or an elementary age kid here listening to this right now, first of all, I, I want you to know that the church and this message is for you just as much as it is for your parents. And, and the question is, what is the foundation of your faith? Is it because that's what you're supposed to do? Or is it that truly there's a hunger and a desire to know God, to walk with Him, to see that walking beneath Him is the greatest blessing you could ever find? So what are your faith and character grounded in? Make sure that it's God and not just your culture, not just your surroundings. So Jehoiada, he's, he's the model of a grounded faith here. He risks his own life to pursue what is right and to preserve Joash, to crown him as king, to restore the house of God and the law of Moses. It took courage. So the question is, is there something or someone that if it were gone would shipwreck any of our faith? Is there something that if we no longer had that or if it was removed and we were dropped into a different corner of the earth, would our faith still be intact and real? And I'll say the tendency is that often we rely on things of earth to inform us and not God himself. 
but everything on earth is going to pass away. Everything on earth will let us down. But the only thing that remains is God and his word. So my hope is that for all of us that we, we can get the clutter out of our life and come back down to the core of there are things that, yes, are good in this moment, in this time. This church is great. But the specific building, the specific location will not last, but God will last. And that's where our faith must be grounded and we must trust. We cannot trust in the success or righteousness of man. We must trust in God. The second lesson here is this. Internal transformation leads to external transformation and glory. Internal transformation leads to external transformation and glory. So Jehoiada's primary concerns were God's promises and God's desires for mankind. He was concerned about a man of, the offspring of David being on the throne. He was concerned about how the house of God could be kept holy. And he was concerned about the law of God being upheld. So Jehoiada was a man who, he had the heartbeat of Psalm 119. If you don't know Psalm 119, it's the longest book in the Psalms, but it talks about, with frequent repetition, a delight in the law of God. And Jehoiada had that. He had a longing for the law of God, to know it, to uphold it, to delight in it. Jehoiada saw God's law as an extension of, of his own heart and his own character. And, and for him or for us to disregard the law is to disregard God himself. So Jehoiada's trust is in the promises and law of God that leads to the restoration of the kingdom. But what begins, where this starts, is not us just externally conforming to something. Where this starts is an actual delight for the law of God. And I don't, I don't mean law in the sense of just, here's a rule you need to follow. I mean law in that it portrays the heart of God and his desires for mankind. And all through the Psalms, you find, you find this with David. He has a heart and desire for God and his law and his reign. And it's something on the inside that, that wells up and flows through his life. Similarly, we need a heart transformed that delights in God, that delights in every word spoken, every command given, because it's pure and it's for us. So the question for us is, have you been transformed on the inside? Or maybe the question is, is your inside towards God's law and his word, is it growing callous? Is it dull? Are you apathetic? And if that's the case, all he asks is that we come to him and ask and, and confess and say, Lord, my heart is not for you. Lord, my heart is drifted. And as we ask, and we ask him to show our sin and pride, we have always open hands, handed opportunity to return to receive his grace. So the internal transformation is what leads to external transformation and glory. So it's, it's by what happens on the inside that, that, that flows out and brings it out in, in God's way. Third, 
God calls us to trust upon Jesus alone, the ultimate priest king. God calls us to trust upon Jesus alone, the ultimate priest king. So we need the idealized priest king reigning and ruling from his house. All of Chronicles anticipates this true and perfect king and priest who's reigning from the house of God and, it has, and his reign in the house is what brings, again, kind of what we're talking about, this external transformation and glory to everything around it. So the, the kingdom through Christ is here and now. The kingdom has been established in Christ's death and resurrection. The kingdom has been established in his victory over death and sin. Where we were once lost and enslaved individuals, we have been freed to willingly subject ourselves to the good and wise Savior. The kingdom is also growing and is present here in this church. It is present in all the other God-honoring, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches that exist around the world today and for all of history. But as we notice that the kingdom is present, but the church is not the kingdom, but we're a part of it. The gates of hell cannot prevail. The tides of immorality and wickedness cannot overcome because the kingdom is here in part. And the house that Christ is pleased to dwell in is the very heart of man, the heart of man who trusts in Christ himself. The kingdom is here in part, but it will one day be in full, the day that Christ returns. So we we don't need to be concerned about the external glory of the kingdom. We don't need to be concerned about the external brand of the church. Now, we could maybe qualify that a little bit, but in, ge- in general, we are called to faithfulness and to trust in the day-to-day, here and now, walking with God. And where we are committed to God and the Bible and the gospel on an internal level, God will one day amplify that and bring about a blessing on the external level. God will do that, not us, God and there's, and God is the one, He's promised us a real, tangible, physical, eternal glory. He was put to death on a cross. He endured the wrath of God in our place. He rose again and promised that uh, to all who follow Him, they will be given eternal life and fullness of joy. As we treasure God and, and are transformed on the inside, God one day in his purpose and his timing is going to bring an external glory to the world like no other. And that's one we are to long for. That's the blessing and hope of the future that we are to set our minds on, knowing that this life right now is actually a life of of death to self. So God, in this moment and forever, he calls us to trust upon Jesus alone the ultimate priest-king. So let us turn our eyes upon Jesus to the only source of our hope and joy and to our blessing. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.